You're listening to What Mad Universe on the Greenlit Podcast Network. Check out all our shows at greenlitpodcast.com. Action, excitement, horror, romance, thrills and chills, swords and sorcery, rockets and ray guns, a dizzying panoply of the strange and impossible from the darkest depths of the human imagination. What mad universe encompasses such tales as these? Join us as we bear witness to the sweeping sprawl of all the history that never was and all the futures that could yet be. It's adventure as you like it on What What Mad Universe. By the way, perhaps we're letting our feelings run away with us. Have you more mind now to be king of Ruritania? If so, I'm ready to be the most faithful of your subjects. You honor me, Count. Provided, of course, that I'm one of the most favored and the richest. Come, come. The fool is dead now. He lived like a fool, and he died like a fool. The place is empty. A dead man has no rights and suffers no wrongs. Damn it. That's good law, isn't it? Take his place and his wife. You can pay my price then. Are you still so virtuous? Faith, how little some men learn from the world they live in. If I had your chance... Come, Count. You'd be the last man to trust Rupert of Hintzow. If I made it worth his while? But he's a man who could take the pay and betray his associate. By God, Rudolph Rassendel. I'll kill you here and now. I ask no better than that you should try. And then I'll proclaim that woman for what she is in all Strelsau. Guard yourself, my lord. Rupert of Hensow, 1898, by Anthony Hope. Hello, and welcome to What Mad Universe, uh, the show about pulp and adventure fiction and genre fiction in general. Uh, I'm Philip, and with me as always is Adam. Hello. I'm not an imposter. With me for once is... <laughs> this person pretending to be Adam. Anyway, yeah, today yeah. we're talking about uh, The Prisoner of Zenda and the uh, General Ruritania novels by Anthony Hope. Um, this is an extremely uh, influential uh, novel. Um, it's sort of... It, it's odd reading it nowadays because so many of the tropes have been copied and it's, it feels like old hat, but it was really a, a huge hit at the time and inspired so many things. Um, it's uh, in including a whole subgenre that's called Ruritanian fiction, or romance, Ruritanian romance, um, because it's this book is set in the fictional Central European country of Ruritania, and that sort of sparked off a lot of imitators. Of course, it wasn't the first to have a fictional country, or even the first with the same basic plot, but it really um, put a lot of tropes in, in one basket and sort of... Um, became a codifier of a lot of things. 
Yeah, it's it's there's sort of two points here that that became a thing. One is just the general idea of a fictional obviously it, as you say it isn't the first time somebody created a fictional country, but in this particular context the idea of there's a fictional country, it's almost always still a monarchy, uh and it's a it's sort of a romantic it's it's an English speaking, so British or US or Canadian uh idea of what a sort of romantic pre-Soviet Eastern European country might've been like, where they're still, you know, the, the King still holds sway because of course the Western Europeans, uh, you know, the, the, the kingdoms were, had become very figurehead like, uh, so there's still some power in the monarchy. Um, it's, it's, it's kind of a fairy tale kingdom in some ways. Uh, there's a haze of romance around it. Yeah, uh, so it's sort of court intrigue, beautiful princesses, you know, uh, right. misunderstandings and um, um, narrow escapes, and you know, uh, right. That. It's it, even the fact that it's called Ruritania, I think, is meant to suggest rural. So it's a, still a bit like it's still a bit Middle Ages e compared to the more yeah. modern, you know, at the time. And it should be noticed countries. this was set in the modern day when it was written, the eighteen uh, nineties. Uh, so uh, it's like somebody from England going into a country that still exists, but also is pretty much in the past because it hasn't caught up with England yet. Right. And then there's the other aspect of this that has been repeated, um, although, again, it didn't originate here, but it, this, this really popularized it, uh, which is the commoner becoming a king or the king becoming a commoner, uh, both the idea of Hey, by the way, we found out you're the, you know, you're the the secret heir to a, a throne of a faraway kingdom, or the idea of a king who kind of has to go among the common people, which, I mean, that goes back to the Arabian Nights, for instance, Harun al-Rashid, uh, even further back, I think you can probably find uh, examples of it. But again, as codified in modern fiction, that became a trope that I think was popularized because of this, although... Uh, we'll probably talk about this in a moment, but The Prince and the Pauper by Mark Twain does predate it uh, by a decade. And that's usually the one everyone quotes nowadays if they're talking about this kind of story. Yeah, it it, like... it's slightly different because they're not switching willingly in, in this case. It's not like uh, the prince wants to be um, wants to be among the commoners and the poor person wants to be rich and they switch places so they can and then they learn about the pitfalls of each other's station. Uh, in this case, it's um, a matter of necessity. Like the king's been drugged and um, right. his cousin, who happens to look exactly like him, has to imitate him. Yeah. And I, they, yeah, in this one, what happens is the, 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 the narrator, who's the main character, uh, is he's a sort of a, a lesser uh, landed gentry in England. You know, he's not even the, the first son. He's the second son of a, a minor family. And... Um, but he, he, you know, he, they have a family legend that a visiting Ruritanian noble um, from the family called the Elfsbergs um, visited and had an affair. And, and there was a scandalous progeny. But they, uh, the, that, you know, royal, Ruritanian royal, royal blood is in their family line. Um, and um, Rudolf Rassendil, as it turns out, because of that connection, happens to look almost exactly like the current king-in-waiting of um, Ruritania. So when he goes to visit and check it out, and then, he, you know, he meets the king, and they take, they hit it off, but there's a, you know, there's scheming afoot. 
Black Michael, as he's known, which is the the king's brother, um, or the again he hasn't actually been coronated yet, but the the soon to be king's brother um, is half brother course, who's older, but he doesn't have a right to the throne by because his father, like he's, they have the same mother but not the same father, or right, the other way around. So he he was born out of wedlock, is the idea. Yeah, he's not. Yeah, yeah, he's he's a bastard <laughs> essentially. Um, so he he um. You know, obviously he's he's the the obvious villain, and uh, they get to partying on the night when they meet, and and uh, the king gets knocked out because he was drugged by um, he was sent some wine by Black Michael, which turns out to be drugged, not doesn't poison him, but he's he's out of commission for the coronation, which for reasons I wasn't a hundred percent clear on, the coronation has to go forward that next well, day. Well, because and... Black Michael wants to take throne and they they have they don't have uh like a lot of leeway there because if people think the king was drunk is at his own coronation or drunk too drunk to go to his own coronation then um they'd lose faith in him and black michael would be able to swoop in and take power i i guess (laughs) i don't know that That, that's the reasoning yeah that seems like a stretch like if they're not if they're gonna throw their king aside just because he got drunk once that seems like you know he's got a really shaky hold on the throne to begin with. So why is I think Michael that's the? Kind of I mean that's in? the implication anyway. He is he is a drunk, um, right? And as oh. uh, anyway, uh, well, there's stuff in the sequel that that'll oh, okay. I'll talk about that you haven't read, but yeah, yeah. So yeah, he's a, he's a, yeah. Anyway, he's a party boy. It's it's clear that he's sort of a and they 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 touch on it, um, but the idea that the king isn't you know the most worthy monarch. He's also got a fiance who doesn't really care for him very much and but when Rudolph takes the throne so they they get Rudolph to shave off his mustache and beard and and take the the throne because he that's what makes him look almost exactly the same uh he has the red hair of the Elfsbergs which is apparently a distinguishing feature um so once he takes the throne it's sort of you know he's the two uh the two servants who are aware of the the issue sapped and Fritz von what's his name Talonheim Talonheim Tarlenheim. Tarlenheim, there you go. Um, uh, they, they, you know, you can see they become very uh, sympathetic towards him, and they, they clearly think he's a really good guy and a, and a solid bro to his, <laughs> his distant cousin. Um, and the princess starts liking him more than she ever liked uh, the, the, the king. Uh, then, of course, almost immediately after the, ca- the coronation, the king gets kidnapped by Black Michael. So they have to keep the, uh, the, the facade going on. And um, it becomes about, you know, trying to run the kingdom while simultaneously trying to sneak in and and uh, and steal back the king or, or overthrow uh, Black Michael. And it's it's kind of good because, like, Black Michael knows because he's got the real king locked up. But he also knows that if he reveals that, you know, the king yeah. who's um, serving is not the king. That's not the king, and I know because I kidnapped the king. Right, exactly. He can't He can't reveal himself in that way. So it becomes this secret clandestine power struggle between the two of them. Um, and uh, with lots of, you know, basically attempting to besiege. Uh, Zenda is the castle, in, obviously, in which the the uh, Rudolph the king is being kept. They're both named Rudolph, I believe. Um, yeah. Th- and uh, they're... Uh, they're so they keep sort of besieging the castle and trying to invade the castle and find a way to do it that they won't just murder the king if they can get in. So it's it's a it's a real swashbuckler. It's obviously um, kind of Alexandre Dumas inspired, I'd say. Um, and it's very 
sharply written for the time. Like a lot of 19th century novels are kind of, they, they're a little verbose. They often, they don't, they don't put the emphasis on the action as much. This really does put the emphasis on the action. It's, it's very fast paced and, and, and swashbuckling and, and yeah, brisk. Yeah. And, and you can see why it's made, there's been so many movies made out of this um, um, book in the franchise in general. Um, like going well, back to the silent era, like there, there's been a lot of adaptations of this. Okay. So it's like it's um, kind of like the Wizard of Oz then, where they did like yeah, a million silent adaptations, yeah, and then there's um, probably one like talky version that became yeah the the, the most um uh, the one I watched, which is the most um highly regarded that I could find, is the um 1937 version uh, with um uh, various um stars. David Niven plays one of the um uh plays uh, uh sorry what's it uh, Fritz plays Fritz von Tarlenheim, uh, and um, Douglas Fairbanks Jr. plays uh, Rupert of Hensau, who's the um, henchman of Black Michael, and he's the main villain of the second book. And right. he, Douglas Fairbanks does a really good job with that role. He's, he's really fun in it. Um, yeah, you can see how... Yeah, Black Michael is... He's almost off-screen even, or off-stage for most of this book. Like, he's... Like, it, Rupert kind of takes the center stage as the villain, and he's kind of an untrustworthy henchman who's doing Black Michael's bidding, but he could kind of turn on him at any moment. Yeah. And even um, Rudolph kind of says, oh, I, I kind of admire this guy, even though he's a jerk. You know, <laughs> like, yeah, such a... like, uh, like, uh, second book uh, is actually uh, narrated by Fritz von Tarlenheim. And he keeps talking about how handsome uh, uh, Ru <laughs> Rupert is, or, <laughs> uh, sorry, uh, Rudolph. Sorry, Rupert. too many R Rupert. names in this book. Rupert. Yeah, yeah. I was right the first time. Yeah, Rupert. Rupert is the classic uh, villain that everyone starts doing fanfic of. Uh, yeah, because he's like so he's he, he's compelling. very handsome. He's a womanizer. He's sort of flamboyant. In the movie, he's somewhat queer coded, though still obviously uh, presented as a womanizer and and straight. But he sort of has that sort of flamboyant, um, fun villain attitude. Right. Yeah, it's it's funny when you, you know, like you say queer coded and. In the 19th century, I feel like things that we'd say were queer coded were just like, well, that's just how royalty is. Oh, I, I mean the would... movie version. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That that fair enough. Yeah, but um, you know, that's also kind of how you expect your 19th century nobles to be. Like, either they're if if they're swashbuckling, they're kind of you know they're they're the uh, the you know uh, Inigo Montoya kind of guy, right? Like with the the you know open throated. Yeah. And that's the Douglas Fairbanks character too, from what I've seen. He's uh, yeah. He's he's the dashing, uh, dashing handsome guy, sort of not not quite foppish, but like I guess foppish. But he can you know he's also deadly with a sword, right? He's a yeah. real, he, he swings from the chandelier and you know kicks over yeah. tables and so on, um, and jumps out of a window, you know, into the water, you know, that sort of thing. Yeah, but yeah, it's it, it uh, hope very clearly the author. He very. He, he clearly has a kind of admiration for Rupert. <laughs> like, even as he's making him sound like a jerk, he's kind of like, he's so uh, brazen in what he does. And yours, Black Michael is sort of this, the classic sinister, fuming, angry guy who, who schemes and stuff like that. But Rupert's the guy who's just like, well, maybe I'll betray you because it's fun, you know, kind of thing. Yeah. Um, yeah. There's a problem with this kind of, novel in general in the valorization of the monarchy uh and there's a line yes. in particular in this one where 
says Black Michael's base of support is with the poor peasants. And like, why am I supposed to root against this guy? Yeah, well that, okay, so that's the thing. Like, when Mark Twain did Prince and the Pauper, the, the very explicit point, because, you know, Twain was very, you know, he's a real populist, egalitarian type. Um, and uh, he, he, it was about how, you know, well, the, the monarchy needs to be more in touch with the common man. And if you had a common man uh, on the throne, he would probably do just as well as, as a monarch. Like, that's actually explicitly one of the things in Prince and the Pauper. Um, you know, even though the, the, the monarch in that story is sympathetic as well, but he, it's very much about the distance between the monarchy and the common folk and the fact that we shouldn't lose sight of that. This reads more like a bit of a rehabilitation of the nobility because Rudolph is already, the protagonist Rudolph, is already a noble. You know, he's a he's a upper class, you know, he's got all this, he's got an endowment, he's, he, he's basically a lazy guy who's wasting his life, which is, he's criticized for, but still, he's just, he can just be a man about town, he doesn't have any actual responsibilities or anything, um, and he's, and he's got noble blood, and he's got, like, so, so, in a sense, sure, he's elevating himself to a king, but he was already sort of better than regular people, as it were, um, and, and that, so there's, there's, there's less of that tension of, like, well, here's what it's like for a, a regular person to be on the throne, because he's not a regular person for the start. Um, it's much more of a, a man of action versus a, a, a nobleman, a king. Yeah, and uh, the sequel, uh, which I read and, and you didn't get around to, uh, um, like I said, Rupert of Hensau is the uh, main villain in that one, but it's actually narrated by Fritz, and there's a reason for that. Um, but yeah, it it basically starts out by saying that uh, King Rudolph was bad at his job. Like he, um, all the um, things that people sung his praises about were actually done by a guy pretending to be him. And he resents that. And um, he, he's just, um, right. He, like he's not a, a, a king who is cruel to people, but at the same time, he's just sort of like a wet part of a, of a leader. Uh, and nobody really respects, Right. Yeah. Well, yeah. He's and, a clueless but nobody party really animal. respects him. He's he's considered weak and ineffectual, and um, his his wife doesn't love him because she loves the other Rupert or the other um, Rudolph. Again, with the R names, uh, yeah, it gets even worse in the prequel. <laughs> yeah, that's how the first one. That's that's sort of the big emotional sucker punch of this book. Is the the first book is that he. You know, he falls in love with her, his betrothed, who didn't really like the the King Rudolph. Um, and, and it's like he realizes to do the right thing, he's got to give her up and she's got to marry this guy who she doesn't like. And he's got to give up love. He doesn't really even care about the throne as much as he cares about the fact that he would, you know, he's in love with the princess. And, and um, that... You know that was that's actually pretty compelling because it's like, well, this is a yeah. moral, a bit of a moral dilemma. He's in a position. He, in fact, he's even sort of in a position where he could like, well, what if I let the king die? And Rupert points this out. He says, well, why don't you just like, I'll kill Black Michael, you kill the king, and then you can stay as the king, and I'll inherit yeah. all these lands, and we'll both win. You know, yeah. And he's almost the, tempted actually, by the, it, uh, <laughs> right? That's that's the climax of the second book, or the the emotional climax of the second book. Um, basically, he. Uh, through various machinations, he has to do this whole thing again with with the king, you know, switch places, um, uh, in order to uh, um, 
because the queen wrote a letter, a love letter to uh, to Rassend Rupert Rupert Rassendel and or Rudolph. Rudolph. Just say Rassendel versus um, Augsburg. That makes it makes it Rass Yeah. Okay. Uh, wrote a letter to to Rassendel, um, proclaiming her love to him, and uh, it gets um, um, intercepted it, in the process of being delivered. Uh, um, um, Count uh, Rupert gets a hold of it, and there's all you know. He's gonna blackmail mm -hmm. and all this stuff. And um, anyway, uh, through various means, uh, um, Count Rupert ends up killing the king in self-defense um, through a misunderstanding. And then, um, so Rassendil has to once again, or he's already been impersonating the king to get the letter back. And anyway. It's all this complicated behind, you know, court intrigue stuff that you would expect from this sort of novel. So, sorry, Rassendel has already been impersonating the king to get the letter back. Yeah, answer? yeah. Okay. And they, and at least for a, a while, he doesn't even know that the king's dead. And yeah. Anyway, um, uh, so it, it actually ends with um, uh, they 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 have another fight, uh, Rudolph and Rupert, and uh, this time. Uh, Rassendil's been been practicing. He actually gets the upper hand, um, and uh, uh, manages to uh, to kill Count uh, Rupert. Um, and then uh, then he finds out that the actual king has been killed, and the uh, the two servants, uh, uh, Fritz and Zapt. Um, want to convince him to take the throne. And of course the queen wants him to take the throne so they can be together, but he's really not sure about it because it wouldn't be the right thing to do, you know, impersonating another man permanently and taking his power and all that stuff. And so he, he ruminates on it. And then uh, at the end, he seems to have come to a decision and he's about to tell them, but uh, uh, Count uh, Rupert's, uh, one of his loyal servants assassinates him. And so he, he dies and um, um, is buried as the king, and only a select few people know about it. And Queen uh, Princess Flavia becomes the the queen and um, rules over Ruritania after that, and is apparently good oh. at it. So it's um, did he have a did he have a son? Did he have an heir? No, no. It, hmm. it says she's the last of the Elfbergs, and yeah, it's hmm. sort of a bittersweet ending. Huh. Actually, not even sweet. So that's impressive. Just... Both, yeah, both stories then, and you know, without a happy ending, which is kind of unusual for that time period, I guess. Yeah, and just and just the genre that. in general, like the um, the swashbuckling thing, usually you just come out ahead. But um, right. Uh, yeah, apparently that's why the second one it has been adapted a few times, but um, like they were planning on making a sequel to the thirty-seven version, um, but they decided it was a little too grim. With you know the main like, character being assassinated at the end, like that's so they didn't make it because it was too grim. Yeah, saying. yeah, it would be a, a downer. They they have made other versions, but there was going to be like yeah. that those actors in, in this in this that's story. It's funny because when has Hollywood ever stopped themselves from just changing the ending and making it more upbeat? That's true, <laughs> anyway. but these were like popular books, so they might not have been able right. to get away with that as much as. Um, I think the the uh, producer also went on to make Gone with the Wind, so uh, uh, he was busy with mm. that. 
Well, uh, another thing Hollywood would never stop itself from doing is uh, breaking for commercial. So why don't we do that right now? And we'll be back in a moment with more of What Mad Universe. On Apocrypals, we talk about the parts of the Bible that a lot of people skip over. Like the wizard battles. The angel jacuzzis. A goat full of sins. 500 drunk elephants. And a man named Porky Party. And yes, that's all really in there. All this and more on Apocrypals every other week on the Greenlit Podcast Network. There are a lot of podcasts with comic book reviews and interviews with some of the greatest creators in the industry, but only one will tell you scientifically what the worst comic book of all time is. And the best. We've been ranking comic book stories for six years. We have a list with over a thousand comics on it, and we're adding more every month. More Rocket Ajax on the Greenlit Podcast Network. It's it's uh, it's neat. You always love the big, uh, yeah, the big uh, swashbucklers from that era. Yeah, um, uh, there, there's a really fun sword fight scene in in the uh, Prisoner of Zenda movie, uh, the '37 version. Uh, really fun. Like Errol Flynn's not in it, but that it's that sort of Errol Flynn uh, sword fighting. Right. Um, well, Douglas Fairbanks, right? Yeah, like yeah, he's, Douglas, he's the same yeah. Way, and yeah. you know, like the the classic shot where it's against the the castle wall and there's the shadows of the two men dueling right sort of classic um anyway it's it's a pretty fun movie um cool apparently it was also remade in the uh in 53 uh, like a shot for shot remake but in colors so um james mason played the uh douglas fairbanks character well, that yeah, that was a thing in the in the fifties. They they wanted to remake silent movies and black and white movies because they, you know, that that was the origin advent of TV and and the movies needed a way to get people back in. So they started making these giant widescreen spectacles, like they remade uh, the Ten Commandments and all that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, so that that sounds like exactly the kind of thing the the, the Hail Caesar era filmmaking, yeah. <laughs> as it were. Um, um, so the third book, it's actually the second, was written after the written after the first book but it's sort of a separate thing um it's um called the heart of uh princess asra um and it's set in these in ruritania in the 1730s so it's a prequel and it's almost entirely different in tone it's it's a collection of short stories linked by a common by characters and theme but it's like very uh separate short stories that sort of cross over with each other uh, all about um, Princess Ostra uh, of Ruritania, who's like the mo- the hottest woman in the world, and every man falls in love with her. Uh, and basically, each each uh, story is about one of those men who falls in love with her. Various things that happen. There, there's some there's some fun stuff in it. I, I liked um, uh, one idea. A uh, um, they they commissioned a painter to send out portraits of her to other. Uh, kingdoms, because uh, that's what they, you know, with the idea that uh, uh, the other monarchs would see her and want to marry her. That that was a thing that happened quite frequently, because you know, no photographs. But the painter mm-hmm. himself fell in love with her, and so um, painted her accurately, but with some sort of weird, um, like technically accurately, but didn't like present her as beautiful. Like so, it's like. Mm. It's hard to explain, but like made her look like sinister somehow and sent out all those portraits to to the various monarchs so that they wouldn't want to marry her. Cool. Uh, 
yeah, yeah so that, that, uh, that, that that's kind of fun yeah yeah so so it's stuff like that there is a bit of sword fighting and swashbuckling there's a there's a bishop who helps her a couple times and he's like a sword fighting bishop who's a member of the Hensel family uh so like fun over the top one of those sword fighting bishops we yeah. all know about um so fun over the top stuff but like it, it's pretty pretty slight um and it's mm-hmm. uh very different from the other two books which are more uh of a piece with each other it basically just setting in common and uh the name Rupert and Rudolph coming up a lot as well there's oh, also really? two henrys <laughs> Okay. I mean, royal people did often copy each other's names out of respect, you know. Yeah, well, yeah, yeah, that's, of course. Yeah, no, I mean, it's it's actually, well, see, I want to say it's somewhat plausible that they'd both be called Rudolf, except that the main, Rassendil's supposed to be this obscure, like, branch of the family, so it's it's a bit much of a coincidence that he's also named, uh, yeah. named uh, Rudolf, but, yeah, anyway. Um, so, uh... Like I said, there's been lots of adaptations, including some uh, very bizarre ones. Doctor Who did an epi- did a story in the 70s in the Tom Baker era called The uh, Androids of Tara, which is pretty much this story, but on another planet and with robots in it. Right. Well, I mean, there's, there's a million... Uh, like, th- this was clearly hugely influential, even when they didn't necessarily use the... Uh, you know, switching the exact duplicate of, you know, a commoner and a king or a, a ra- or some rando and a king. Mm-hmm. Uh, or or there's, a, there's, a, there's a fairly frequent thread of, oh, what if some rando became king, even if it wasn't literally switching places? Like, um, the one that immediately sprung to mind, when I, even as I was reading this, was uh, Duck Soup by the Marx yep, Brothers. Yep, yep. Which, uh, of course, has, in that case, the joke is that uh, the, the main, the woman who's the richest woman in Fredonia, who finances everything that they do, is like, well, I get to pick the king next. And she picks Rufus T. Firefly, which is uh, Groucho Marx's character. <laughs> and, and just, uh, that's she's obviously just, she's in love a... with him, but, and so doesn't yeah. see his flaws, but he's just a, a nut. Yeah, of course. He's a horror. It's yeah. Groucho Marx, needless yeah. to say. Um, but yeah, that's obviously meant to be a. a, a uh, a goof on that uh pro- that concept uh that it was definitely yeah that was definitely a trope well this is why we're talking about it because it became a huge trope uh but it and, and there's also a uh, a futurama episode which i uh took the time to rewatch this morning uh called the prisoner of benda so very yeah yeah uh yeah, where yeah, um uh, it, it's Bender about a brain switching device so bender uses yeah, exactly. a brain a mind switching device on on the um, emperor of uh, Robo Hungarian, Robo Hungarian, yeah, Robo Hungarian, <laughs> and then um, they play the whole, you know, my suspicious, you know, my obviously evil cousin who wants to take over the throne, and they even use the name Princess Flavia, which is funny. Um, and that, oh, I missed that, that, that. I forgot that that was yeah, Flavia again. Yeah. And uh, that um, that episode, just as an aside, uh, they invented a mathematical formula to figure out how the um, um, right ending would work you know because you can switch brains but you can't switch back so they right. they wrote out a mathematical proof of how they could if you uh have two extra people in you could you could uh switch back switch everybody back no matter how many people right. you had but uh yeah just going back to the uh like immediate fallout from prisoner yeah. agenda so there's a bunch of um 
there's a bunch of uh, books that kind of riffed on this, and it sounds like uh, Edgar Rice Burroughs wrote one. Yeah, yeah, and... he wrote um, one called The Mad King. Uh, I think he wrote a couple set in that, that setting, uh, Lutha country. Um, uh, is that a is that a like a commoner becomes royalty story? Yeah, I believe the Mad King is basically just Edgar Rice Burroughs rewriting this book. Um, oh, okay. I believe so. I I, I didn't get around to it, but uh, yeah, uh, from what that... I've seen, it it's basically this book. There's also the uh, Rouse Stark series by George Barr McCutcheon, um, and I didn't. I was gonna read at least one of these, but I didn't get around to it. Um, these, um, are also extremely influential. I'm not sure what the difference is, but the sort of subgenre Ruritanian romance is also sometimes called Rouse Starkian romance. So oh. it seems to be like on a, it came afterwards, but it seems to be on a similar level of popularity. <laughs> okay. Is that again, is that a switching places thing? I don't think so, it... but it is the, um, you know, fictional central to Eastern European country right. monarch court intrigue sort of well, thing right and we talked about um uh the uh we talked about jurgen by james branch cabell and that was um uh, you know a couple decades later but and it wasn't exactly the same but it does have the idea of yeah we're creating a fictional romantic in that case it was a fictional medieval country uh mm -hmm. so it was set in the past but it you can see the 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 link here i think that it yeah. was that Oh, there's a romantic fictional country that I'm going to make up where adventures can happen. Oh, basically. Winston Churchill also wrote one of these. Uh, it's right. the uh, Lorania in his uh, Savrola. I haven't read this one. Uh, I would again. I was going to, but um, well, that's fine. We can't only read so, all. Yeah, <laughs> there's yeah. a million of these things. <laughs> um, I was going to read a smattering of other examples of this, but I only read the the, the trilogy itself. So sorry about that. The, um, that's okay. The, the Winston Churchill one sounds interesting, though, because apparently it is explicitly about um, trying to restore a republic. Yeah. And, the, and it was the, monar the monarchy that came in. And I, I'm not clear on whether the hero was, again, a monarch who was, like, established as a puppet monarch uh, to make sure the Republican in the, the classic sense of Republicanism uh, didn't uh, didn't triumph. Um you know, say what you will about Winston Churchill. It sounds like he preferred the idea of a democracy in that in that context. Yeah. Um, but that was apparently uh, that was apparently like, so. Apparently, it's kind of Prince and the Popper esque more than it is um, than than it is that. And then you have um, uh, when did um, Gil we talk? Of, of course, our beloved Gilbert and Sullivan. When did they do the Gondoliers? Oh, uh, I think that would have been. Um... Let's see, I'm not sure of the year. Um, uh, yeah, let's uh, let's see, looking it up now. Um, uh, 1889, so it would have been after this. Uh, after Preserves nope, ended. Cause, no, cause oh, 89, ended sorry. 80, I, yeah. Sorry, I was thinking 99. Sorry, yeah, uh, a little bit before, so similar, similar thing. So that kind of raises the question, because, of course, Gondoliers is a political satire about just a regular person becoming the, the king as well. And it kind of raises the question of, again, like, how original... So this wasn't so much original as it was epical. Like, it's it's the it became so popular that everyone started yeah. referencing it. Like, like the Da Vinci Code, which used ideas that had been around for, like, 20 years, but turned it into a huge blockbuster basically yeah. well in this case i think prisoner of zenda does it well like it's 
like it sets out to do what it's doing and does it in a way that's entertaining and fast-paced and all that. I think, I think mm-hmm. uh, a, a certain like the ideas aren't necessarily original, but it's very um, uh, entertaining in how it does it. Oh yeah, no, no, no question. I can see why it's a success even even now. Like it, it's it as we say, it's extremely cinematic. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's actually funny because, like I say, you said, you know, it it, it does feel like he's leaving it open for a sequel at the end, both in the sense that Rupert survives and it literally ends with him going, I feel like that chapter of my life is not over stroking chin, stroking chin, you know, like it, it really feels like to be continued at the end in some ways. Yeah. Um, I'm surprised he only did one more book and didn't just keep it going for, you know, decades. He could have, he could have, maybe he got, maybe he did the, the Sherlock Holmes thing and he got sick of it and didn't want to keep writing sequels to it, but it really felt like he planned a sequel at the end of this one. Yeah. Um, well, I mean, the second one sort of is a closed ending, basically, so maybe it just didn't, right. didn't have any other ideas. I guess he could have gone back into the past some more, but um, mm-hmm. I don't know. Well, so, it's like how um, Edgar Rice Burroughs wrote Tarzan, and it's more or less closed, but it was so popular he just kept going back to yeah. it and writing forever. Right? And, and <laughs> like, going back to Sherlock Holmes, he, you know, Conan Doyle literally yeah, exactly. killed off the character and had to bring him back. Mm-hmm. Um, Which makes and me... He, I'm just surprised there weren't people like offering him dump trucks full of money to write more basically. Yeah. So, anyway. Um, uh, anyway, some other examples of uh, fictional countries in this vein. Uh, uh, one that I, I really find interesting that uh, I haven't really looked much into, like I haven't read the, the things they come from, but the Bronte siblings, the uh, uh, Bronte sisters and their brother, whose name I keep forgetting. Um, they, uh, as as children, they came up with uh, this sort of fictional group of countries called the Glasstown Confederacy. Um, a bunch of countries, like each one had their own country, but all the capitals were named Glasstown. Okay. So in each country, there's a Glasstown. They're they're different cities, but they have the same name. Anyway, um, and they they wrote all these like poems and. And stories as children set in these uh, these fictional countries, and uh, they later evolved uh, into uh, the countries of Gondol and uh, yeah, Angria, um, which is sort of more mature storytelling. But I really like, you know, in 1827, these these kids were just making up their own countries and just sort of fun. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was definitely a trope before this. Yeah book as you as we say it codified it, it I, I think the real appeal here because prince of the pauper is set in um is set in england so it's not a fictional country and um and as is the gondoliers is set in italy obviously and um but I, I, this codified it as kind of we can create a fictional country for the modern era where we can have all the kind of shakespearean and court intrigue and even, you know, medieval swashbuckling, but have it, you know, happen in the present, even though, you know, theoretically we're yeah. a more modern era. But if you go a little to the yeah, east... Yeah, basically uh, this, you could go to this place. Right, exactly. Now. Instead of having someone literally go back in time or something, yeah, <laughs> you can just create a, a you know, it, it requires, which Mark Twain also did actually with yeah. Connecticut Yankee and, and King Arthur's Court. Um, but it is, it is quite entertaining that... Um, this became such a huge uh, 
like I say, tro codified trope, and not just in Europe, but in lots of other places. The the thing I realized, of course, was that uh, Latveria in in uh, Doctor Doom's country in Marvel Universe is probably kind of a late uh, a late example of yep that sort of yeah. Uh, and and Doc Doc Doom even has an origin that's a bit like a a villainous version of of this in some ways, right? Yeah. Um... I also, uh, yeah, it, it's a thing. Like the Chitty Chitty Bang Bang, uh, the movie at least has uh, Vulgaria, which is very much like a Ruritania sort of thing. Um, mm -hmm. There's actually uh, one of the Marvel Adventures comics, sort of the kids' offshoot, uh, Fantastic Four, has Latveria as a um, direct based on um, the country from Chitty Chitty Bang Bang, where, like the people wearing lederhosen. And, you know, yeah. like high your Central European stereotypes. I thought that was really fun. Um, right. But yeah, there, there's plenty of examples in comics. of. Uh, and then and then it moves out of, yeah, like it moves out of Europe and becomes all over the world, too. Like you could art, you could make a case for Wakanda being just Ruritania, you know, re moved to Africa instead of. Uh, yeah, I mean, that as, has different as, metaphorical stuff. Right. And, and that ties into well, the uh, to Telesar from of one. Blood, which we discussed in a previous episode, but yeah, sure, yeah. I want to I want to be clear when you're making it a fictional Asian or African or South American country, and you're a, a you know a, a white English speaking writer. There's a different connotation than if you're doing it with an Eastern European country. But I will argue that there's at least some overlap. Like in in the uh, you know I say I mentioned Wakanda. It was meant to be you know a positive portrayal of an African country yeah. and African royalty. And I think Stan Lee and Kirby were pulling on the tropes that they knew of for that in a positive way. And that probably fed back into this. Like they, they, you know, they used a lot of, as we've discussed in other shows, we've, they used a lot of tropes from like the, the, the early 20th century sort of remixed into the post uh, world war two era. Mm -hmm. And uh, that I think, I definitely think that would have fed into their thinking for something like that. And I even pointed out, uh, I, I even realized that uh, Eddie Murphy, the Eddie Murphy movie coming to America uh, you can see it there as well. Like it's 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 an African country, but it's it's again the exact same thing of a king who decides to be a commoner for a while and uh, and you know meet with the common people and sort of again it's maybe more prince and pauper than uh, than prisoner Zenda, but you can obviously see that it's feeding in from that trope. It's just relocating it to Africa instead of Europe. Mm -hmm. Um. Uh, I haven't read it, but Vladimir Nabokov's uh, Pale Fire apparently has a subplot with uh, somebody thinking he's a um, <clears throat> king of a uh, yeah of a Ruritanian like country. Yeah, Pale Fire is significant. I have read it. it, it it's significant because uh, there's a sub like it's a very un it's it's sort of the peak unreliable narrator because the the main character is a confabulator. He just makes up. It, there's a there's very solid reasons to think that his entire story is fake by the end of the novel. Uh, but he does claim to be dispossessed uh, European royalty who has been uh, forced to flee to uh, to uh, America. I think it was explicitly because of a Soviet uh, revolution or a, a, a communist revolution in his country. And that he ended up just, you know, hanging in this neighborhood and he has this this weird uh, this weird history as a as a dis deposed monarch. Um, so, again, it's it's very definitely feeding into the Rotanian trope. But in that case, Nabokov sort of knew it was a little bit, you know, fantastical and and, and naive and almost vulgar. Uh, 
like as an as a backstory to give to the character like it seemed too fantastical to be plausible and that's part of the point of the novel that this guy's backstory seems like it's just barely plausible but even at the time you would have been like well how many deposed monarchs are there yeah. in real life really? I, you know? I'm, like it's well i get an email from a nigerian prince like every other week uh oh that's right yeah there's a lot of nigerian princes out there so it is it does happen in real life that is a thing uh, and then i've course, never actually yeah. gotten one of those emails i do get scam emails but i haven't gotten yeah, the nigerian yeah. prince scam yeah um yeah. There you go. So there you go. It's Ruritanian romance lives on in the form of spam. It's something <laughs> that still happens. <laughs> um, I mean, it kind of it like I, we're joking, but it shows you like it's just the impulse of like, what if I'm a monarch? And, you know, even like Harry Potter is total seemingly totally different, but it's still the sort of what if I'm snatched out of poverty and learn that I have a special destiny and I've, you know, Star Wars is. The, the fact that Darth Vader's a, a Lord of the Sith is not really emphasized, but it's the same basic principle of like, you have an important parentage and you have an important bloodline and it's going to be, it's going to be significant. In that sense, ironically, this book is a little less problematic because it's, it's not emphasizing that, you know, oh, well, you have pr important blood. He, he already knew he had important blood. So that kind of is off yeah. the table. Almost. And also the, yeah. the King, the King Rudolph is, as we see in the sequel, not very good. So it's right. it's not quite holding up the, uh, you know, monarchy is the true way because there are natural betters, but it is sort of like right. we just need a good king in there. Um, so it's not <laughs> yeah, well, that's, it's not perfectly. Um, yeah, that's that's the classic way of defending, honestly, defending the monarchy because you know no historian is ever going to say, oh yeah, kings are always good. Like everyone is aware, no matter how entrenched the monarchy is to a certain country you know people are perfectly willing to say well that was bad king you know john and then there was good king richard kind of thing like that's always part of the 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 the, the history of kings you know all, all the way back to the old testament you know the the hebrew kings aren't held up as paragons of morality necessarily you know there's there's yeah. all there's always that kind of attitude of like oh kings can be garbage sometimes but they're still your king right like so you it gets reinforced in other subtle ways and i think that in a way, that's what this story is doing, as opposed to Prince and the Pauper, which is explicitly going, well, the king is someone who lives in a palace and doesn't get, is lost touch with the common man, and the common man could be the one who comes in to make all the decisions. So, it, essentially, you've got the two halves here, because the Prince and the Pauper is emphasizing, you know, the political, critis, critical, cr being critical of the monarchy, versus the Ruritanian aspect, which is emphasizing the fairy tale, emphasizing what if I became king and it was all romantic and fairy tale like kind of thing, right? Yeah. Um, like the, so the, the Princess the main... Diaries, there's another example. The Princess Diaries yeah. has uh, you know, that classic thing. Yeah. So the the phrase Ruritania, like I said, it became a genre, a subgenre of fiction, but it's also been used as um as early as um eighteen ninety six, so just a few years after the novel came out, as like a placeholder name for like a generic fictional or a, a generic uh central european country um yeah and it's been used uh even yeah uh as like um uh thought experiments for like a a, a like you're talking about a, a hypothetical soviet satellite state and you just call it ruritania because that's just a placeholder yeah. name yeah like legal legal teachers will use it as like a, an exam just a, a generic 
you know, country that there's maybe refugees from or something. Or uh, apparently there was an example of a, an ambassador or like a, a treaty being signed and it wasn't specifically used as a, as a, like a, a legal, a point of legality, but they sort of said, well, imagine we were being invaded by the Ruritanians kind of thing. And like they, that, that's, that's sort of the placeholder name for a European country when you, among Europeans and diplomats and people of learning. So it became a real entrenched uh, idea, which is kind of, which is kind of funny. Yep. Well, our brief reign is coming to an end, so it's time to say adieu. We are Philip Rice and Adam Prosser, the rightful king and his exact double. But which is which? We want as ever to thank Alex Ross, producer, engineer, web hoster, uh, for keeping our dark secrets and helping us pull off this switch. And court composer Jack Furick for writing our theme song. Um, those who are loyal to the king could uh, pledge to our Patreon, which we use to help pay for hosting costs and whatnot. Uh, if you subscribe to either of us, you can listen to this podcast early every time, as well as getting bonus material, cut footage, and illustrations and comics, among other things. Um, just go to Patreon and search for Philip Rice, 1L, or Adam Prosser, with two S's. Or if you go to neversleepsnetwork.com slash series slash what dash mad dash universe, uh, you'll see all the links. Uh, I also want to take a moment here. Uh, I've started up another uh, podcast. This is just kind of a limited thing. Uh, it's just going to be running for about nine weeks. Uh, but myself and uh, Douglas McDonald Norman, who is an Australian lawyer who I started uh, communicating with online, um, uh, just arguing about Star Trek. And we had so many arguments about Star Trek, well, not arguments, discussions about Star Trek, that we decided to uh, launch them in a podcast. So uh, the Mirror Universe Star Trek podcast is now available at uh, mirroruniverse.podcast.podbean.com. Uh, and again, if you actually subscribe to my Patreon, you would be able to listen to a bunch of episodes. There's only two episodes that are up as of this recording. Um, yeah, I listened to the first one. It's very good and interesting. I don't know a ton there, about Star Trek, but it, it's sort of... Um, uh, yeah, it's it's interesting for even like a casual fan, so... Yeah, I, I get in. We're, we're, we're sort of talking about what Star Trek means and how it's been interpreted over the years and how everyone kind of talks about, well, Star Trek, it's that thing. But this is this is us going, well, actually, you know, one person meant it this way. Roddenberry meant this and yeah. you know, Ron Moore meant it this it, way. It's Rick like an it expansion of uh, our discussion in the episode on the uh, final reflection. Sort of that That's as, right, as yes. like an ongoing discussion where I'm not in it, so... <laughs> yes, well, it's me and, and a very pleasant uh, Australian gentleman uh, talking about Star Trek. So, um, yeah, if you're interested, uh, uh, check that out. I, I thought that came out really cool, and it's currently updating. Again, mirroruniverse.podbean.com. Um, you can also follow us on Twitter at WMU Podcast or Prankster36 for me, or SpearHalfOck underscore for Philip. Again, the links are at Never Sleeps Network dot com slash series slash what mash da what dash mad dash universe so until next time hail hail ruritania and its mighty beardless ruler